I've had people say to me, I wish something would fall on my lap, like it fell into yours. And I know that that's not with a lot of love. And I, the way I always respond to that now is there's so many opportunities for serendipity and there's so many opportunities for us to meet people that can change our lives and we can change theirs. There's so much opportunity for this exchange and for a new path to be taken as long as we're open to it. And I think it's really about being open to these opportunities because they happen to us all of the time but we often approach it with that's too good to be true or really skeptical. Welcome to CEO School. We're your hosts, Sunira Madani and Shannon Monson, and we believe you deserve to have it all. Less than 2% of female founders ever break 1 million in revenue, and we're on a mission to change that. Each week, you'll learn from incredible mentors who've made it to the 2% Club, as well as women well on their way, sharing how they've defied the odds so you can do it too. You're a real business now, and class is officially in session. This episode is sponsored by The Club, a quarterly box and digital monthly community to help you level up in leadership and life. Learn more today at join.theceoschool.co slash the club. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you to Ashley Ray. Ashley is the founder and CEO of Mala Collective, which is a company which works with artisans in Asia, from Bali to India to Nepal, to create products supporting a mindfulness and meditation practice, which is something that every ambitious woman entrepreneur needs, in my opinion. So I'm really excited to introduce you to her and her story. Since starting the Mala Collective in 2011, Ashley has taught meditation across North America, taking meditation trainings from LA to New York to India and Bali and has worked to make meditation and mindfulness more accessible and fun. So Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really excited to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful. Thank you. I want to start with a question I'd love to ask. How did you get here? So how did you go from, and I'm very curious as someone that is passionate about mindfulness and meditation, is this something that you have always been passionate about or is there something in your life that really made you start down this path? Well, I, I have a great answer to that. <laughs> and I mean, I think it's, I, I know everybody has a very interesting entrepreneurial journey. And I actually was a journalist covering murder trials before I started my business. So it was the exact opposite of, of what I do now. So I was a journalist covering murder trials, won a national award, had, you know, what many of us would call a quarter life crisis, ended up in Bali as, as a lot of people do when they're on that soul searching journey and fell in love with mindfulness meditation. I think that most people assume that I was deeply into meditation before I started the business, but really I was just curious about meditation. And mind you, this was 10 years ago when meditation wasn't as prevalent as it is now. Everybody talks very openly about their meditation practices now. 10 years ago, it wasn't that way. So when I was in Bali, I fell in love with these mala beads. A woman came up to us on the plane as we were flying from Bali to Thailand. She sat down, she said, your aura is so beautiful. Can I sit and talk to you? Long story short, she ends up being the same woman that made the mala beads that we had bought in Bali. And her guru told her, get these beads to the West. They embody peace. The more people wear them, the more the world will be at peace. But the West needs peace the most. And we said, cool, we dig peace. We're in, we'll help you. <laughs> so that's how Mala Collective started. And I mean, the entire journey has been it's my own exploration and seeking of what is mindfulness? What is meditation? How do we make it beautiful? How do we make it light? How do we make it accessible? So it's been 
an incredible 10 years. That's so beautiful. But I want to go back. I want to go back to the part where you wrote about murder because I feel like this has got to be a very like emotionally taxing job. I consider myself a murder, you know, I enjoy the podcasts. I don't know why I can't stop watching, but I can't imagine how emotionally taxing writing about some of the most horrific, horrible parts of humanity is for your job. So how did you come home. I mean, I want to hear more about this burnout because I think there's a lot of people that get into jobs. There must've been something that got you into that job in the first place that you thought, you know, this is going to be exciting. This is going to be, I don't know, like talk me through that journey. And at what point did you realize I just can absolutely no longer do this anymore? Well, I, I always joke that journalism, I was paid to be nosy and I am such a curious person. So I got to be paid to do what I love, just ask questions. And it's so interesting as a journalist, I deeply miss it. The ability to, to pop into someone's life and get a view of their life and ask questions and really reflect back to them how unique their journey is. I just found journalism so fantastic and so interesting. And I actually was an arts and entertainment editor. And it just all happened because I live close to the courthouse. This has been, you know, 10 years ago uh, when newspapers were taking, you know, the probably, you know, I would say one of their first rounds of hits because it's not stopped. But I just lived close to the courthouse. My editor said to save money, (laughs) you're now covering murder, even though you're an arts editor. So it was never a goal of mine to cover murder. And it was, it was very easy to become obsessive about it. And it was, it was on my mind all of the time. It's all I would talk about breakfast, lunch, and dinner to my friends. And it's, it's such a not overwhelming experience. It's not healthy. It's overwhelming. And the reason I ended was I won a national award and, and I covered a really heart-wrenching story and became friends with the mom of this little girl that was murdered. And at the end of this story, I went to her home, wrote a story about this little girl. And the mom said, this was the most healing closure I've ever been able to receive to tell her story and know that someone I trust is sharing it. And I just thought, what a level of human connection and beauty and love and karma. And this, this experience, this exchange I had with this person, it was so profound. And I thought, I don't think I'll ever get that again in journalism. And not that I was the best journalist, not that I didn't have anything else to learn, but there just felt, it just felt like a moment of closure. It felt like, okay, I think that's what I was meant to do. And I've never watched a show on murder or listened to a podcast or watched any of these Netflix shows because living it is such a uniquely profound, overwhelming experience that I don't think I need to, to relive it. And, you know, the first time I started writing about meditation, I thought, oh, I love this so much more. <laughs> Such a beautiful topic. <laughs> I choose yeah. this one. <laughs> well, and I think what's really interesting to me is that there was this common thread here of human connection that you 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 felt, okay, I want more of this, helping people come to peace and find that in their lives. That peace is something you said already a few times through this episode. Oh. You were really connected deeply with that. And how can I do that in a way that's coming from, you know, all the beauty and goodness in the world? So how did you get into meditation? And, you know, I'm trying to think of how did you, you got into this, it sounds like hobby or part of your life. And then how did you go from, this is something I do every day to actually, you know, I just met this artisan and I want to turn it into a business. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't even think let's turn this into a business. This was my partner and I at the time. And we thought, let's just help this really cool hippie lady out. She really wants to spread peace. We can do that with her. And then it started growing and 
it was never with the intention of turning it into a business. I think, mm. you know, it's quite a cliche thing to hear. Like if I had known what I, what I would become, I wouldn't have done it. Like I never thought I'd be running a million dollar business and teaching meditation and running a team. Cause there's so many low points in that too. It's learning how to be a leader, learning how to run a team, learning ops and logistics and HR and payroll and PLs, all of those things even now intimidate me 10 years in. And I realize I don't have to know the insights, everything. There's so many people smarter than me, but in the beginning, you know, I, we weren't looking at it as a business. We were looking at it as this thing that we were just really curious about. And I was curious about meditation. I was curious about how do we make this accessible? And actually the way I approached it was if I have all these questions, I bet other people have questions about it too. And I really, you know, looking back now, I, I suppose that that journalistic approach of asking questions and being curious is really what fed it for us in the beginning is understanding. Well, I don't, I don't think I can sit there for 30 minutes with zero thoughts. So I wonder if there's other ways to meditate because that's what I thought meditation was. So it was just this curiosity tour, this curiosity seeking of what is mindfulness? What is meditation? Can we make it a bit lighter? And can we explore what it means to us? And if we share that, you know, I really want to make it like this buffet of what it can be to people and people can choose their own approach to connect themselves. That's really all it is, is about connecting to yourself. I love this theme of following your curiosity because I think a lot of times we feel like, oh, I need to have a business plan. I need all of my ducks in a row and I need to have all the answers. And hearing mm -hmm. you say, you know, it wasn't even my intention to turn it into a business. I was just following what made me curious. So a lot of people yeah. will say like, how do I start? How do I get started? I love that you just follow what, what made you curious until you kind of turned around mm -hmm. and said, Hey, actually, I think that we could take this to the next level. So can you talk to us about that point where it went from, you know, following your curiosity to actually, I'm ready to really turn this into a business and take it to the next level. Oh yeah. I remember that moment. <laughs> so much pain. <laughs> and, but one thing I'm going to say before that is that that story of meeting this woman on the plane and being really open you know, I've had people say to me, I wish something would fall on my lap, like it fell into yours. And I know that that's meant with a lot of love. And I, the way I always respond to that now is there's so many opportunities for serendipity and there's so many opportunities for us to meet people that can change our lives and we can change theirs. There's so much opportunity for this exchange and for a new path to be taken as long as we're open to it. And I think it's really about being open to these opportunities because they happen to us all of the time, but we often approach it with that's too good to be true or really skeptical. And the caveat to that is I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. You know, I was in my twenties. Would I have been that open-minded <laughs> in my mid thirties? I don't, I don't know. Like who knows what I would have done. All I know is in that moment, I was open to receiving and I was open to being curious. And I think that that openness is super important. So I want to dwell here because this is really yeah. good advice. Okay. Something you said that really stood out to me was that there's so many opportunities for serendipity. Mm -hmm. And I think that most of us think of serendipity as something that just happens. And that perspective of actually, I remained open to the possibilities. I was open and, and willing to receive when it did fall on my lap. And how many times do mm -hmm. we walk past opportunities that are serendipitous mm -hmm. because we're not open to receive them? So thank you for sharing that bit of wisdom. Okay, now you may tell us about the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so that breaking point, I, I remember 
I remember it fondly because I went, I went back into journalism and then went into PR and I was working nine to five as many people, you know, they're doing the hustle and they're starting their own business, working nine to five, coming home, working at 6 PM till two in the morning, talking about self-love and mindfulness and peace. And I hated everything. I was the antithesis to what we were talking about that I realized, oh, I'm living so out of alignment of what this business represents. I, there's, this, is, this is the breaking point. It wasn't that I now have this much money saved or yes, we've reached our goals. It was, I can no longer function like this as a human being. And I talk about this a lot when I'm coaching and what I'm working with entrepreneurs now is I, I truly believe that we are our own backup plan, that we will always figure it out. We know our stuff so much more than we give ourselves credit for. We often give that power away to others. My mindset at the time was, okay, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go all in because I got to this point. I've gotten through everything that's been difficult up to this point. I can get another job if it comes down to it. And that's what I did. We, we moved into this city and I didn't know anybody. And I started waiting tables in the evening to start like, to make some money on the side. And wow, my ego, that was such a, that was such a hit to the ego of I'm a national award-winning journalist starting a business and I'm going back to waiting tables. And I mean, I was a waitress for seven years. I loved it. It got me through university. I traveled the world with that money, but I mean, that, that felt like I was taking five steps backwards and I had to realize and anything that I am doing right now is to push forward this dream that's bigger than me and it's okay. And it's humbling and it doesn't define who I am in this moment. And I lean into that hustle and I lean into that curiosity. And if that's what it takes right now, that's what it takes right now. And if I want to stop and get a nine to five tomorrow, I can do that. And we're, we're so capable to do that. It's, it's not, it's not permanent unless we want it to be permanent. So it was still adventurous in the beginning. There's two things you said that really stood out to me. One is that you were really able to set your ego aside enough and being willing and humble enough to start back from zero. And I think sometimes we have to take two steps back to take 10 mm -hmm. steps forward. And for mm -hmm. you to have the really self-awareness to say, okay, I appreciate that if I stay in a steady nine to five job, I don't have the time to build the dream. The way that yeah. I can build the dream is by waiting tables at night and having the humility to say that I think is a really common experience that in the early stages of entrepreneurship, we all experience, I mean, I know, I remember I, you know, shutting down a new business and starting back from zero, like that takes yeah. um, humility to say, I've, if I built it once, I can do it again. And the other thing you said is we are our own backup plan. And I love the confidence that gave you to know that you weren't going back to zero. You were preparing yourself and you had your, you were the backup plan. You had the backup plan. I think that's so beautiful. What are some of the top tips, you know, at your waiting tables, you're building this essentially, uh, you know, from the ground up, what are some of the, maybe the top three things that allowed you to get to a really steady place, maybe your first six figures in revenue with the business? Ooh, I can talk about the biggest barriers I, I overcame <laughs> in that time. We'll take that. There's we'll take so that. much there. <laughs> and I mean, I'm going to just step one, one moment back to waitressing. I was not always humble. Looking back on it now, I can talk about, yeah, I was really humbled. There was days where I was very humbled. There was days where I was so resentful mm -hmm. to my past that I, this is so embarrassing, 
I refused to shave my legs as a waitress, like going to work in a skirt. I'm like, if I'm going to go in, I'm going to be a feminist and I'm not going to let men hit on me because I'm an entrepreneur and I'm more than like, there was these little protests that I would do within myself because I was battling my ego and they're so ridiculous and so silly. And that was the moment again, like we talk about breaking points. There was a moment where I realized actually me now being a waitress is like massively a disservice to me. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it's, it was just too much for me, for my, it wasn't necessarily my ego. It was just, um, it was time to go all in. So there's so many layers of going all in. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. We still have some resentment. I'm all, I'm here like team feminism. I'm here for not, not shaving yeah. our legs. And it's interesting yeah, yeah. too. Cause I think a lot of times when we're in these stages where we don't know if we're going to make it and we're doing the job we don't want to do mm-hmm. to build the business we want to do. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's, probably really affirming to hear from someone like you that has built this into a seven figure business that, Hey, it's okay if you're not really happy and don't feel super aligned right now. <laughs> like that's part yeah, of yeah. the process and part of what's going to get you to the next level. So what were those, those barriers that you broke through that's to right. get to the next level? Yeah. I would say the biggest barrier it was me. And I know that that might sound like a corny kind of woo answer, but I carried so many limiting beliefs into starting this business. And it was all around, I am not good enough. I'm a journalist. What do I know? I am a waitress. What do I know? Who am I to do this? And it was so clear to me that this business was so much bigger than me. We get these incredible emails from people saying, all these mama beads have helped me through a divorce, that they've helped me through an abusive marriage. They've helped me through a sex change. They've helped me in coming out to my family. They've helped me with my kids moving to college and I'm now an empty nester. That these malas became this representative tool, this talisman, this object, this symbol of perseverance, of growth, of overcoming. And I would read these emails at night, you know, like in my underwear, eating Thai food and thinking, oh my God, these people are bearing their soul to me and they don't know that I don't really know what I'm doing. How dare I? Like how disrespectful that I'm the one receiving their emails. And mm. so I would I would just really, it was so much self-talk and I, I genuinely believe that the way we speak to ourselves and the limiting beliefs are one of the biggest things holding us back in our business. And I, I truly believe that mindset is so important. And I didn't have a community at the time. I didn't have a coach at the time I was alone. And I was looking at asking for help as a weakness, you know, that whole stubborn thing, (laughs) not shaving my legs, not asking for help. But there's, but it's actually very empowering to ask for help. And it's very empowering to be vulnerable and say what you don't know. And I didn't realize that I was quite naive. I was very alone. And as soon as I started surrounding myself with people, and as soon as I started investing in coaches, going to business groups, going to talks and being around people that were in the same boat, it would normalize that human experience. And I think entrepreneurship is lonely enough as it is. You don't need to sit in that tower alone. You can share those experiences with people. And as soon as it starts to normalize that experience, oh yeah, okay, great. I'm not totally totally screwing this up. I'm not the only person to screw this up that bad. There's something so beautiful and human in sharing those experiences. And I think that was a massive hurdle for me to overcome. Um, probably the biggest hurdle for me to overcome in business. And I'm not saying that I've solved it. It is yeah. still an ongoing journey. It's not like I am perfect. and I am the best now. That's, that's not where I am. It's, you know, talking about, you know, at the beginning of our chat now is, understand that this has all been led by curiosity out of that whole low point for me. I did a meditation. This voice said to me, Ashley, you're so selfish by playing this small, get over yourself. 
you're robbing so many people of something so beautiful by being in this place of fear because this fear is comfortable for you and you know it and you're friends with it now. Try like just get out of that and get over yourself. And so I, I really channeled that into the business and we designed a collection called I'm Enough. And that has been probably for seven or eight years, our best-selling collection every year, because it is a very true, authentic reflection of, yeah, a lot of us don't feel like we're enough. We don't feel like we're lovable. We don't feel like we're fearless. We don't feel like we're courageous. We don't feel like we're patient. We don't feel like we're abundant. And this learning for me has been, we are all of those things and it's creating space within ourselves to find it. So through journaling, through meditating, through walking. So now when I hit one of those cycles of feeling not enough, I now have those tools and resources that I can turn to. And I think that it's it's a forever practice, but overcoming that first hurdle was years in the making. And again, the biggest thing I think I had to overcome. I love what you said about the human experience because I, I know for a fact this is something I've struggled with. I coach a lot of women. This is a very human experience. I think that was a perfect yeah. way to put it that a lot of people struggle with this. And I love that, you know, the rephrase, one of my favorite rephrases of the question, who am I, is why not me? Why not me? And I love what you're saying with really taking the time to, we are all of those things, but we have to create the space to find it within ourselves. And so that was really beautiful. I got chills over here listening to you say that. Okay. So the first thing, getting past the mindset of who am I to do this and getting out of your own way. I love that. What was the second thing? Oof, I would say the things that there was Hmm. the things that we're avoiding, <laughs> like understanding <laughs> what are we avoiding? And for me, I was really avoiding finance. I was avoiding money. I was avoiding these things that were really triggering my limiting beliefs and understanding that God, Google has so much power behind it. <laughs> yeah, I just need to ask for help and do some research and realize it's okay if I actually don't know how to do this. It's okay if I am not the best at balancing a PL sheet. It's okay if I'm not the best at whatever it is. Like, you know, for me, the, the, the other biggest hurdles around finance is always, you know, in my experience, talking to entrepreneurs is a, is a block. Uh, but leadership was a really big block for me too, is understanding what makes a good leader. And how do I show up as a good leader? And I was super avoidant. I, again, I would avoid finance. I didn't like it, but I would avoid difficult conversations. And as soon as I shifted it to the sooner I have this conversation, this clarifying conversation, the closer I am to a solution that helped me shift the what accountability meant versus I have to have this conversation and I have to be the angry boss and lead with fear and it, for me, it was really just trying to understand what kind of leader do I want to be? Um, how do I show up that way? And how do I lead with inspiration versus fear and be in an abundant mindset versus the scarcity mindset? And, you know, those are, those are all very big statements, but I mean, there was moments where I thought, my, my team, you know, at one point, I think we had about 20 people on the team and they'd all go for lunch and not invite me. And I thought, oh, but I think I'm a cool boss. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a cool person. And we're all the same age. And oftentimes, like, you know, I was maybe the younger person in the room and just thought, I don't want to be the boss. This is so lonely. Um, so there, there is something kind of about shifting the perspective on what is a leader meant to be? What kind of a leader do I want to be? And that was, that was a really big one for me. And now I feel like, again, I haven't perfected it, but I'm really proud of how I lead my team. And I lead with a lot of space and a lot of trust. And it took me figuring out my values and what success meant to me to really understand how I want to lead. 
I love the way that you talked about that because a lot of these things were fearful or avoidant of like, maybe it's finances for you or leadership. They're also things that we're not taught. You know, Mm -hmm. you're a journalist. (laughs) I don't know why you would have taken a finance class, right? And (laughs) like the same with leadership, you know, we put this pressure on ourselves to be a good leader when there are skills that you need to be taught, you know, how to communicate, how to, how to set boundaries, how to empower your team, how to cast a vision. Like those are leadership skills that if no one's taught us, there's no reason for us to just naturally be good at them. And I think it's really interesting what you said, asking yourself, what am I avoiding? You know, it's kind of like the elephant in the room, the thing that's keeping us from the next level. A lot of times is the thing we don't want to look at because it sounds hard. And I love that you just really took it head on and said, Hey, here's what I'm going to do. And and here's how I'm going to make it better. Oh, this is such good advice, Ashley. Okay. What is the third thing? What's the third thing? So first getting through that, who am I mindset? Second, figuring out what you're avoiding and really addressing it head on. What is the third thing that's really allowed you to build a successful seven figure business? Oh, I would say understanding what success means to you and really stepping into your version of it. Cause I, for years. So we, we did a, a co-branded product launch with Lululemon across North America. And we were their first ever co-branded products. This was a few years ago. And it was so cool. And we, our team grew, we, we became this cool company and we got this huge office space. And I would say, you know, as a, a green entrepreneur, it's probably what I would have had on my vision board of like mm-hmm. a big brick loft open space. We get green juice and organic groceries delivered. Puppies could come in. We'd have meditation teachers come in. We had like a lounge space and I hated it. I hated it so deeply because I don't want to be here at eight and leave at six. I don't want you guys to have to look at how I'm dressed to like really make the standard of how we need to show up to work. And I don't want to manage all of this pressure as a leader. Like all of these things I thought I wanted, I realized this was everybody else's version of success. Mm. And I, as I was reflecting on that, this was about four years ago, this happened. My girlfriend said, I have to come visit your office. I said, great, come take a look. She said, I love this space. I'm like, you can have it. <laughs> I actually don't want it anymore. I want to go remote. And at this point, I had been living between like Bali, New York, and Thailand, and Vancouver. And so I had met a lot of remote workers, but I wouldn't say it was as popular again as it is now. Sure. COVID, super normalized now. And I, I said to her, you can have my office. And she took the lease over. And within 30 days, we were remote. And what is so fantastic about this is as soon as I made that decision, this might get a bit woo-woo, but as soon as I announced the universe, as soon as I announced, this is what I want, it all just, it just came, it just happened. It, you know, three girls, the team became pregnant and left on mat leave soon after four of the girls wanted to go back to university. Another girl wanted to start a business. Like it, it, it was such a natural attrition that all of a sudden the team had like lovingly and sweetly evaporated into their own beings into what they wanted to do in their own path, their own journey. We were remote. I didn't really have a plan, but again, I knew I could figure it out. And I went on this curiosity tour asking remote companies and meeting with CEOs, how did you keep culture? And they all said, we're all figuring it out as we go. I said, great, that's the permission I need to also figure it out as I go. And we became remote. And you know, it's so funny in this lesson for me is I, w- I remember we were on a date around this time and this guy looked at me, I was telling them that we had just gone remote and he said, wow, that must be pretty embarrassing. Hey, is your business going under? Are you, are you guys going bankrupt? Are you, are you struggling? And I thought, oh, no, I, uh, this is my version of success. Is what an time. assumption. I mean, 
I know. And obviously it triggered me because I still talk about it. (laughs) I I think that it was, it was me standing in a discovery of this is what my version of success is. My version of success is time. And that might not look successful to everybody, but I didn't care anymore because when I had what looked successful, I was deeply unhappy. And now, you know, I'm talking to you from Guatemala and my entire team is remote. And for four years, we've been remote very much like starting a meditation company. When people say now, how'd you know that was going to be cool? People said, how did you know that remote work was where it was going? And I just said that it's, it was me following my heart. And what I think is unique in that story is there's going to be so many people that try to shelter you or warn you because they love you. Like the amount of people that said, you're quitting your job because you met a hippie on a plane. Like, are you sure? And you're going to give up this beautiful office just so you can travel. Are you sure that's what you want? That doesn't sound good or look good. And it was me standing in my truth of this is success to me. And if I really want an office, I can go sign a new lease. (laughs) Like it's not permanent unless I want it to be permanent. And I'm so grateful now that I followed that. And I find it, and I'm so curious of your experience in this, but when I'm coaching, I don't just coach people in business. I don't just coach entrepreneurs. I also coach people in finding life alignment and discovering their values and understanding what does success mean to me? And what is my purpose? And I think that those are reflections that are deeply uncomfortable, deeply spiritual. They take time. They take, you know, a lot of self-reflection that a lot of people don't want to go through. But I think that as soon as we figure out our values, as soon as we figure out what is success, we start to get closer to our purpose. We get closer to our potential. And I mean, if it's not in line with somebody else's version of success, that's okay. This is a beautiful story. I mean, I'm just sitting over here nodding my head. The thing that's so interesting to me is your version of success was someone else's version of failure. And, yeah. and I think that's really powerful because if we look around trying to achieve everyone else's version of success, like you looking around, this is not mm-hmm. my, this is not my, you know, this is not my vision board then at the end of the day, we're going to be the ones that are unhappy and how beautiful Mm -hmm. that you were able to say, Hey, I, you know, reject that statement about the business being a failure. This is actually my version of success and living in that truth. These are such beautiful stories. Thank you so much for sharing with us. I want to, I want to pivot a little bit here. You've talked a lot about these beads, the the mala beads and your meditation Mm -hmm. pillows. I know Mm -hmm. all of this has roots in Hinduism and Buddhism. And I would love to hear, you know, more about how we, as you know, we have a big American audience, how we can respect the tradition and the cultures while, Mm -hmm. you know, adopting these practices into our lifestyle and what, what, what we can do to use these beautiful products that are made by artisans um, yeah. in Asia while being really respectful of the culture that they come from. Mm, beautiful, beautiful question. I think what's also really important, and I, I always share this, which I mean, maybe my sales team isn't pumped on me sharing this, is <laughs> you don't need our products to meditate. You actually don't need anything to meditate. You only need your breath. These products are beautiful and they're made with these beautiful materials and they're made with so much love. And as you mentioned, with these roots in Buddhism and Hinduism, but roots in so many traditions, in so many religions, you know, meditation isn't exclusive to Buddhism and Hinduism. It is, it is meant to be shared. And if, if these pieces inspire you to sit and connect with yourself, that's why we've made them but they're not necessary. And that's why we we also create a lot of free meditations. 
you know, being, you know, like my background in journalism and educating people and creating content for me, it was super important to be able to offer as much free content and support and education as we can so that it really isn't just about an experience of buying a product. It's meant to be part of your evolution and part of your journey and whatever it represents to you. You know, I know a lot of people wear them as jewelry and that's, I'm not against that. Like, I think that we often get asked, are these gemstones going to heal my liver? Or, you know, they all have different meanings and qualities, like rose quartz, meant to open your heart chakra. The way I like to look at these pieces and honor them is if, if they come into your life, and let's say, you know, I'm wearing a mala on my wrist right now for patients. Is the gemstone bringing me patience or is me looking down at my wrist and going, oh yeah, my intention today was to practice patience. Mm. Therefore, I'm thinking about it more. I'm bringing it into my psyche. I'm bringing it into my aura, into my energy, into my field. Did the mala do that or am I doing that because this beautiful object has reminded me of that? So they are so sacred and they do hold space for you and they they do guide you and they are traditionally tools, you know to clarify, we did not invent these. We did not invent meditation cushions. We did not invent mala beads, you know, working with crystals and with malas and cushions. It's such an honor. And I'm so grateful. And it's been beautiful to see what they mean to different people throughout their journeys. Just, you know, the example of a lot of people going to yoga, starting off as a workout and then realizing, oh, this is actually quite a profound experience to bring me peace and mindfulness and reflection. Maybe the mala you purchased because, oh, turquoise is such a beautiful gemstone. And then it speaks to you in a different way of representing protection. And then maybe you start meditating with it. So I think I always hear different journeys and experiences that people have with the products. And I think it's really beautiful and really profound. And I'm grateful that we get to enter people's lives in that way because it is such a vulnerable entry point to be at an event or speak with people and share with them this gemstone means this and then just seeing them weep and realize I need that. I need that in my life. I'm I'm yearning and craving that connection to that quality in myself. And so, I mean, the beads can be used to represent whatever you need in that moment. And I think as long as you're honoring it with that intention and being in this place of integrity and self-seeking and self-reflection, there's a lot of love and honor in that experience. And so beautiful too, that it can mean different things to different people. You know, I, I appreciate a product that does meet people in their vulnerable moments. And I think that's really cool that it does different things to different people. I'd love to talk mm-hmm. just briefly, you know, if you choose a path as an entrepreneur or an ambitious woman, or you're you know, working being the CEO of your life, I think burnout is really common, especially after mm. the year that we've all had. I feel like mm. the whole world is collectively grieving burnout and being on 24 mm. seven. So I'd love to hear from you as an expert, what would you recommend for our listeners starting right, right now today? How can they mm. find more peace in their life and start a mindfulness or meditation practice sitting at home listening right now? Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to answer this in a few different ways because I think there's so many approaches to this. So I I hit burnout every year and it just happens like clockwork in November and I get adrenal fatigue and I'm wiped. And I I went to the doctor, this is maybe four years ago, and my doctor said, you need to take a break. And everyone's version of a break is different. I knew myself well enough that if I went to Mexico and sat on the beach that I would be on emails or I'd be a knowing (laughs) team or I would still be there hovering and like kind of, you know, just hovering from a distance and lurking in Slack. And so I, I had to reflect on what do I need to do for myself 
that puts me in a position where I can't check email. And I knew that I wanted to be embodied. I knew I wanted to be in my body moving so that I wouldn't just be sitting because I, I know I can't sit still. So <laughs> I decided to go and hike in Himalayas. And my doctor was not impressed because her recommendation was take a break. And I thought, this is my version of the break. Where is there no internet? And where can I find movement? And where can I be in nature with fresh air? That just happened to be a very extreme move on my behalf. I think I flew out the next week and bought all of my hiking gear like three days before and oh my showed up <laughs> in the mountains with hang tags and all my clothes. And now every year is my gift to myself since my partner and I've like, since my marriage ended, my commitment to myself was every year I'm going to take myself on a journey overseas alone, as uncomfortable as it is and be in my body for seven days. So I go hiking every year and I always dread it. I always, the lead up to it, I think, oh my gosh, why am I doing this? What am I doing? I don't want to do this. And then as soon as I get into the mountain, there's no internet. I just weep and I cry all day in joy and in, in pain and sadness and healing and releasing. And it's the most beautiful, profound experience, but also very difficult. And I know for me, that's what I need now for me to let go and release and heal. I think that the movement practice is so important to so many people. And I've, I've heard a lot in this past year. I also want to acknowledge that's not how everybody needs to heal, <laughs> nor is that accessible right. to everybody. Right. You know, I mean, my move was a bit extreme and, and I acknowledge that. And I think that there's so many beautiful ways that we can do this from home without, you know, flying to Nepal. I, I've seen in the past year, so many people coming to Mala that are in this place of anxiety, of overwhelm, of grieving, as you mentioned, and feeling lost. And even when they sit down to meditate, because the two things I hear when I tell people I teach meditation and work in meditation is, I know I should meditate, but I'm really bad at it. Or mm. I tried it once and I was super bad, so I gave up. So it's it's the, I know I should, which is such a guilty way to enter something. It's so this is, this is where we keep it light. So if you want to start a practice, you know, here's a, here's a couple of tips to start it. Start by tying it to a habit you've already built. So if that means you brush your teeth every morning, which I hope you do use that as your, okay, I'm going to go meditate now, or I turn on the coffee pot. I'm going to go meditate now. Building an entirely new habit that takes a lot of work, a lot of commitment, a lot of self-discipline, huge fan of self-discipline, but we want this to be easy. We want this to be light. We want this to be accessible. So tying it to a habit that you've already built, beautiful tip. The next thing is just start really small. It, it can be two minutes. Your meditation practice does not need to be 20 minutes. It does not need to be 30 minutes. If you sit there and set a timer on your phone for two minutes Make sure that the timer that's on your phone is not the alarm that you wake up to in the morning. It can be like an easy, gentle, beautiful sound to maybe associate some joy with your practice and just a minute. And then the next day, maybe it's three. And then maybe the following week, it's eight. And you're going to miss some days here and there. So that kind of leads me to the third point is don't judge yourself. We are such creatures of nothing. And I noticed, you know, I mentioned that we do a lot of free content for Mala. We do a 21 day meditation series twice a year. And I always notice that people are committed for the first five, six, seven, eight days, and then they fall off. And then if they miss one day, they just don't come back. And it really is this self-judgment of I've missed a day. I'm the worst meditator. I knew I couldn't do this. But I mean, if your friend was trying something for the first time and they missed a day, how would you talk to them? You would say, Hey, you're doing great. It's okay if you miss a day, just go back tomorrow. And we do not speak to ourselves that way. So that practice of self-compassion is super important in meditation because sitting with ourselves isn't always this joyous, 
beautiful breakthrough. There's some days where, you know, stuff comes up that we don't want to see, which is why it's really hard to sit with ourselves. You know, I would encourage you to reflect on when was the last time I sat by myself for three minutes and didn't pick up my phone after 10 seconds of being alone. Like we are programmed to just distract, distract, distract. (laughs) And I think it's because we're avoiding whatever feelings that we're like shoving down like a beach ball inside of ourselves. And the more that we connect to ourselves and create that space, you know, the first few times it, it might be uncomfortable. And then it does eventually get to a place where, you know, if you start out of guilt, maybe it'll shift into a place where you're called to it and you're pulled to it and you're excited about it. And I always get asked by type A people, but when's it going to kick in? When am I going to get the benefits? And I'm like, yeah, I hear you. And I've been doing it for 10 years. And some days I have profound days and some days my entire meditation is I don't want to do this. You know, it's, it gets better. It's like going to the gym and you build this momentum. It's like anything that you you just need to put a bit of time and effort and commitment and show up for yourself. And it's, it gets easier. Um, but you're not broken. If your mind wanders, your mind's going to wander always, it always is going to wander. And it's just not judging yourself for it wandering. I love that. Just not going into it from a place of judgment, whether you do or you don't, there's no guilt associated with it. And I think that's really good advice for any new habit you're establishing in your life. So Ashley, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Where can we find you online? Where can our listeners go get some mala beads or join the free meditation practice? Tell us more about uh, where to find you to continue on this journey. Yes, of course. Thank you. Um, Well, you can check us out at Mala Collective. We're a small team and we read all of your messages and emails. And we love, love, love getting messages around meditation, intention setting, and please reach out. Love hearing from you. Um, We also host a monthly meditation night, the last Thursday of every month. So whenever you're listening to this, it's still last Thursday of every month. And it's really meant to be an experience to ease people in. So, you know, as I mentioned through embodiment and movement, you know, we did a meditation practice recently where we did a lot of movement, like a soft, gentle yoga practice and then meditation. So we want it to be a bunch of different like a variety of meditations. I'm a huge fan of gratitude. We did a gratitude practice one month. It's meant to be soft and gentle and beautiful and easy win. So I would love if, if anybody wants a free ticket, please message me. Uh, and then you can find me at Ashley underscore underscore Ray and AshleyRay.co. And as I mentioned, I'm stepping into coaching and I love working with people, whether they're launching a business, scaling a business, but I, I really love helping people understand their values, define success, and stepping into purpose and truly finding that alignment and joy within the lives they've created, whether or not they're entrepreneurs. I think that the alignment and self-love and believing and understanding and embodying that we are enough is, is such an important, beautiful experience. And for me, was the most profound shift in my life. I'm so grateful to be able to work with people for them to, to find out within themselves. I completely agree. Thank you so much for sharing such beautiful stories and really mind-provoking thoughts around just how we can really tune in and follow our curiosity and become more mindful. So thank you so much for coming on today's show. We will link website, Instagram, and the show notes below as well. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. We want to invite you to follow CEO School on Instagram for show notes, inspiration, and exclusive behind the scenes you won't find anywhere else. 
We also have an absolutely incredible free resource for you. It's the seven lessons we learned building seven and eight figure businesses. These are complete game changers and we want to give it to you completely free. All you have to do is leave a review of the podcast, why you love listening, screenshot the review and email it to hello at ceoschoolpodcast.com and we'll send it your way. See you in the next class.